This is an RFP Extra. Here's a past message from Nate. Hi, this is Brian Edwards welcoming you to today's RFP Extra. You're in for an incredible treat today. Nathan Cravat is going to open God's Word and preach the Word. So often on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, you hear us talk about the preaching of opinions or ideas, notions, rules, regulations, traditions, and frequently we say that our objective is to preach the Word. That's what Paul said to Timothy, preach the Word, not around it, not about it, preach it. Nathan does that in today's episode. We're going to leave this message blessed and inspired by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So sit back, listen, and soak in God's word as Nathan preaches today from the book of Acts. All right, Hope Church, let's open our Bibles together. We are in the book of Acts today. If you're visiting with us, we are teaching through the book of Acts. Glad you guys are with us. Glad our family is here. So has anyone here ever had a job evaluation? Have you ever been called in for a job evaluation? Have you ever had a good one? Or like all thumbs up, you're doing great. Hey, this, this was not planned, I'm telling you. Has anyone ever had a bad job evaluation where you get called in and you're just like, man, I think things are going great. And they're like, you do? And they proceed to tell you, has, has anyone, okay, this takes it a step further. And I know there are people in the room that this has happened to, including myself. Has anyone ever been audited by the IRS? Ooh, that's so much fun, isn't it? Just God blessed you with that extra stress in your life. It's so much fun. If you've ever been audited, you understand how difficult those things can be. Have you ever had to pass a very difficult and rigorous test to get your license in the career path that you want to pursue? Has anyone ever had to go through that, like something that was, I've got a a guy who went through boot camp down here nodding his head. He understands a little bit about difficult tests. Has anyone ever heard of the LSDT? This is the language skills diagnostics test that any undergraduate has to take for the purpose of being admitted into the journalism programs. And they say it is extremely difficult. As a matter of fact, they call it the widow maker. Because a lot of people that grow up saying they want to be a journalist, they, they take some classes, get through uh, their first degree, and then they have to take this, and it just it knocks so many people out of it. What about the bar exam? Christian and Stacy and Jeff aren't here this morning. Uh, they're, they're traveling this morning, but they've all three had to take the bar exam so they could share with us. But they say that the California bar exam has particularly proven difficult Uh, I think across the United States, there's a 60% pass rate on the bar exam. In California, it's 40%. So it it is a very difficult exam, but that's still not the most difficult. They have the USMLE. Does anybody recognize what that is? That is the United States Medical Licensing Examination that any medical doctor has to take after, I don't know, 10, 12, 14, 27 years of college, however long they go to college, Then they have to pass this test, and it is incredibly difficult. And they say it's one final hurdle before someone begins to practice medicine. They have to pass this, and it is not easy. But believe it or not, even those three are not the most difficult. They say that the most difficult exam in the United States or even in the world to pass is the CPA exam, the final exam to become a CPA. And they say that 
it, is, it also has a slightly less than 40% pass rate of those who take it the first time. Most people have to take it over and over and over again. I got the idea in 10th grade that I wanted to be a CPA. And everyone who knows me laughs out loud because that would never work. I'm glad I did not have to take that test. Believe it or not, pastors also have to go through a pretty rigorous exam. Some pastors, some of them just get online and pay for their ordination and they get ordained. I've actually had to go through this process twice. After the first group kicked me out, I had to come look for another church. So that's how it ended up here. I'm just joking. Everybody didn't know. <laughs> Nobody knew whether or not to believe me on that. But yeah, I've been through it twice, once in a denomination. And then when I, when I started with Hope Church, uh, the elders and the deacons were ordained here. And that was a very special service. And while every week for a pastor is a little bit of a job examination, right? It's, it's a little bit of an evaluation. Be honest, you're judging me. I know that. Uh, I do a really bad job. I, I will hear about it, especially from some of the leaders in this church. But every week is kind of like a little bit of an evaluation. But this week is going to be particularly challenging for me today. And that is a very good thing because today we're going to be evaluating the preaching that happens in this church by the standard that is set forth in Scripture in the book of Acts. We have a model prayer that is given by Jesus in the Gospels. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And that's where he teaches the disciples to pray. But what we're going to be looking at today, I want to call it the model sermon. This is a sermon that the Apostle Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on the church. And I believe this is going to really set the bar for what the preaching of the Gospel is. Is going to look like. So, I want to talk today about the gospel is preached. The gospel is preached, and we see this in the book of Acts, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And I want you to follow along with me as I read this. This is the word of God, starting in Acts, chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose. Let me rewind, remind you of what's happening. They be, the spirit fell, they begin to speak, and everyone heard them in their own language. These Galileans began to speak in their own dialect, their own language, and people from multiple nations began to hear them in their own language. It was a miraculous thing. And some people, most of the crowd, the Bible says all the crowd were in awe, but some of them, even though they were amazed, began to mock and make fun of the apostles and say they're just drunk. Peter answers this and says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, verse 17. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes." The great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know certainly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many more words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41 is amazing. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. I don't apologize for reading so much. It's important to see the entire sermon and to see the response to the gospel. So I want to remind you, when Jesus ascended into heaven, do you remember what commands he left with his disciples? He left specific commands for the church to follow. He told them to preach the gospel in every nation, to baptize converts, to make disciples, and to teach all of his commandments. Those were the commands that he left with him. And I want to remind you that this is why the church exists. The church does a lot of good things. The church is a community of believers. The church reaches out and helps and meets social needs and does lots of amazing things in the community. But the reason the church exists is to fulfill the Great Commission. These are our marching orders. And as we travel back this morning through 2,000 years of church history, 
to the very first act of the church, we see that the very first act of the church is the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed and 3,000 souls are added to the church. And the sermon that we read this morning is a foundational document of the church. And what we have read has been forever recorded by the Holy Spirit to instruct us. It is important that we understand what we read this morning and what it means for us as the church of God. Because I want to remind you, this building is not the church. We are the church, the gathered body of believers, those whose souls have been saved by the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. So we see Peter standing boldly together with the other apostles. That's important. He's standing, he's speaking boldly, he's with the other apostles, and he proclaims God's message to the world. And the first thing I want you to notice in your notes, when Peter preaches, Scripture is the basis of his sermon. Scripture is the basis of his sermon. He roots everything he says in the text. And he doesn't just use one little verse, quote it out of context, and then speak for 30 or 45 minutes on what he feels like saying. Everything he says comes out of Scripture. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Joel. He's quoting Psalms. And he's using this as the basis of his sermon. It is no accident that every Sunday morning we open the Bible and we read and work our way through books of the Bible in context to understand God's Word. God wrote a book. And we should know it. We should read it. We should study it. And that's why we meet together. God's word is opened and it's proclaimed. And God's word is honored as true. How you view the Bible has an impact on how you respond to the Bible. How you view God's word, if you think it's just kind of some moral lessons to help you get through life, that's going to affect how you read God's word. If you believe that God's word is true and literal, and it has applications for our life, and we're held responsible for it, then it will change how you read God's Word and how you respond to God's Word. So while I should not have to say in church that Scripture should be the basis for every sermon, I do have to say that. Because it's very tempting for people like me, for pastors, to stand up and just give a motivational speech and make everybody feel good and try to get as big a crowd as we can. And try to meet all the social needs around us. That's tempting. But when we do that, we dishonor God's word. Our job as believers is not just to make converts. Yes, he says to baptize converts. But he also says make disciples. A disciple is one that actually follows. One that learns God's word. He told them, teaching them all things that I have commanded you. That is not a... One sermon, you preach it and then it's done. You give an altar call, people get saved, and then boy, we did our job. All right, let's move on and preach another gospel sermon and see if more people can get saved. No, we want to make converse. We want to see people get saved, but that's just the beginning. Making disciples is a lifelong journey. And that's why the, the gathered church of Jesus Christ is so important. So scripture is the basis of his sermon. Number two, Jesus is the topic of his sermon. He starts out, he quotes scripture, but he immediately runs to Jesus. He tells us, and this is 
breathtaking. It's mind-boggling. This would have been extremely controversial to the Jewish religious crowd that he was speaking to. Because Pentecost was a religious celebration. And it says people from all nations under heaven had gathered together in Jerusalem. All the different languages. But they're coming together to worship God. And God wanted everyone who read his scripture and believed in his word and believed in the true religion. He wanted them to know that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that had been prophesied. So Peter stands up to that crowd speaking in one language. They're hearing it in all of their individual languages. And he proclaims that Joel is prophesying about Jesus. That's not just a small detail. That is exalting Jesus to his rightful place. He says that Joel prophesied about Jesus. He even takes it back further and goes to David, the patriarch, the king, the one that they all celebrated. They're in the city of David. And he says that David was prophesying about Jesus. He's saying that David is just a type of Jesus. David died and David was still dead. David was still in the grave. He had not resurrected in the way that Christ had. So he is exalting Jesus, making him the topic of his sermon. And I could go book by book by book. I won't do that because I did that recently. But we see that in every book of the Bible, it's pointing to Jesus. And it doesn't have to specifically name him. It doesn't have to specifically spell it out. We see a lot of that in the New Testament. But every hero in the Old Testament, it was all pointing to a hero that was coming to rescue this world from our sins and to save us and to rescue his people. So when I preach a sermon in here, if Jesus is absent, it's not a sermon at all. It's missing the most important part. Scripture has to be the basis of our sermon and Jesus has to be the topic of our sermons. Number three, we also see that the gospel is proclaimed in his sermon. He doesn't just mention Jesus. He lays out, spells out the gospel. A dear friend of mine and I have been having this conversation for months. We have to pass on the gospel to the next generation. How sad would it be if children were raised in our homes and did not understand the gospel? How sad would it be if in our churches... And in our Sunday schools, in our children's church, in our Christian schools, the gospel was not spelled out and laid out in a clear way where the next generation can come to know Jesus in a personal way. The church of Jesus Christ has to proclaim the gospel. I don't have time to go back verse by verse, but I read the entire passage. He proclaims in this the gospel through Jesus' sinless life. He talks about Jesus' mighty works. His miracles. He talks about Jesus' sacrificial death, how he died for our sins. And then he talks about his resurrection. And he spells out that Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose from the grave, is now alive. And he's preaching to the people that crucified Jesus and boldly proclaims, You did this, and God is holding you responsible. The gospel in and of itself, church, is confrontational. The most basic claim of the gospel and of scripture is that we are lost, that we're sinners, and that we need Jesus. If we don't ever talk about sin, the Savior makes absolutely no 
sense. We have to understand that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. So he tells us that Jesus is alive. He tells us that Jesus is exalted. He told them clearly, Jesus is not in his grave. He rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the Son of God. And then he takes it a step further. He says, this Jesus who was raised from the dead, he is both Lord and he is the Christ. He's the Messiah and he is God himself. He has been exalted. Paul spells this out in Philippians a little bit better. He said he's been given a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Titus says it this way. He says, we're waiting for the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our God. We worship him this morning as our Lord and our Christ. The gospel is proclaimed in his sermon. Fourthly, we see that sinners are convicted by his sermon. We're so scared of offending anyone these days that we sometimes water down the gospel so much that sinners are not convicted by their sins. I remember the day. I remember the sermon. I remember where I was sitting when the Holy Spirit pierced my heart and showed me that I was a sinner and that I needed Jesus and that he was the only hope I had. And when that happened, nothing else in life mattered. How much money I made didn't matter. How many people knew my name didn't matter. How famous I was or how, how insignificant my life was. Only thing that mattered was what God thought about me. And I knew I was not ready to stand before God. And my heart was convicted, and I praise God for that mountain preacher that stood up. His name is Dana Williams. He stood up, and he preached the gospel in a very clear way. And this boy who had heard it over and over and over and over and over and over again for 25 years, finally I got it, and I hit my knees, and I called on Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and nothing has been the same. When Peter preached, sinners were convicted by his sermon, through his bold, confrontational preaching of the gospel, they saw their condition, that they were lost, and they saw their need of Jesus. Our sermons have to point people to Jesus. They have to preach the truth of the gospel, and sinners will be convicted. If you had asked me last, this time last year, Hey, Nathan, do you think that someone like Kanye West could ever hear the gospel and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus? I would have said yes, theoretically. Yeah, of course, I believe anybody can. The Apostle Paul did. Anybody can. He was killing Christians. Obviously, anybody can hear the gospel. But if you had asked me, do you think that, that would happen? <laughs> no. And you can name another celebrity now that doesn't know Jesus. It seems so unlikely. But we saw this past year what the gospel can do in the heart of someone who hears the true gospel preached and responds to the gospel and calls on Jesus as their Lord and Savior in repentance and faith. So sinners are convicted by the sermon, but one of the most important things I want, to, want you to see is number five, that salvation is offered through his sermon. He doesn't just preach that you're sinners and leave it at that. I've heard the street preachers that do that, that yell and scream and condemn everybody, but then they forget to tell them about God's grace. We have to preach the gospel 
Based on scripture, Jesus is the topic. Sinners will be convicted. But we've got to include that salvation is offered. And it says they received his word. They received the gospel. It says that they repented of their sin. And it says that they were baptized. They were identifying with Jesus. They were following him. And do you realize that in that day to be baptized, to follow Jesus, could have been a death sentence to them? They get kicked out of the synagogues. Their family disowned them. And they didn't care. They had heard the gospel. They responded to the gospel. And I can truthfully say that I believe with all my heart from myself and the other elders and pastors and teachers that have stood in this pulpit, the gospel has been preached in this church and will continue to be preached in this church. That is our goal when we stand up to teach. But I also want to remind all the Christians in this room that this is not just a job evaluation for me as a pastor. You realize the Great Commission applies to everyone who calls Jesus their Lord? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Then you've been told to go into the world and make disciples and proclaim the gospel and make converts and baptize people and to teach them what Jesus said. Church, pastors can't do this job alone. We gather together specifically to equip the saints. This is not where most of the evangelism happens at Hope Church. This is where saints are equipped to go out into the world and to evangelize. Thank God people have walked these aisles. They've been saved. We've baptized people. But most of those people that have been baptized in this church, they were reached through a small group. They were reached through a friend at work. They were reached through someone who shared the gospel with them outside of the walls of this building. And I'm not just pointing my finger at you. I know there are a lot of people in this room that are sharing the gospel as you go into your jobs, as you go into your family reunions, as you go into the holiday celebrations, you are sharing the gospel and people are responding. And I know there are people sitting in this room this morning because someone did this. They shared the gospel. I'm here this morning because somebody shared the gospel with me. For our application this morning, something we can take home with us. I love the application because it's amazing through the power of the Holy Spirit, a hundred people can hear the scripture, can hear the sermon, and the Holy Spirit can apply it to our hearts in different ways. So I don't know what God has to say to you specifically this morning, but I do know some things that stood out to me that I believe God wants to say to someone in this room through his word. Number one, church, Jesus is the head of his church. We don't get to vote. We don't get to set the agenda. We don't get to decide the direction. We don't get to write a new mission statement. Jesus is the head of his church. This church has elders. This church has deacons. This church has pastors. But we are following Jesus. He is the only head of the church and he has left in his word the marching orders for his church. The marching orders for his disciples. And it's our job to obey it. He sets the agenda. His truth is marching on. Each generation does not get to decide what, a, what the church is going to be about. This is the church of Jesus Christ. He is the head of his church. And that applies to each of us individually. Are you a part of the church of Jesus Christ? He's your head. Are you submitting to him? Are you walking with him? Are you obeying the gospel? Are you sharing it 
Are you loving those around you? Number two, Scripture is our standard. We don't have to guess. We don't have to search for hidden words written on a holy grail somewhere that has been buried for centuries. We don't have to get a code, as I saw an article this week on a pastor that was so serious saying that the Word of God is written in code and we have to have the special code to understand it and churches throughout the world are just totally missing it today. No, we have God's Word preserved, presented, clearly written. It's inspired as it was prophesied years ago, a farm boy could pick up God's word, read it, understand the gospel, and be saved and encounter Jesus Christ and have his life changed. The scripture is our standard. We believe it and we need to live by it. Number three, the Holy Spirit empowers his people. We see a man, Peter, who had walked away after Jesus was crucified. He had denied Jesus. He walked away. He went back to fishing. He went back to his career. He was out of the ministry until he saw the risen Lord, until Jesus spoke those words of life over him and told him, commissioned him, go feed my sheep three times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? Go feed my sheep. This man that had walked away, this man that had had great failure, this man that was afraid that he would be crucified just like Jesus was. After Jesus was crucified, all the disciples were hiding. This same man stands up in the center of Jerusalem and he preaches to them, you crucified Jesus. Do you know how he did that? Do you know how 3,000 people were saved? The power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. We can do nothing without the power of the Holy Spirit. So church... Whatever you're walking through this week, whatever difficulty, and I know some of us are walking through difficulties, the Holy Spirit is in you. You have been given all that you need for life and for godliness. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If you need healing, if you need boldness, if you need strength to walk through a trial that God chooses not to take away, if you need faith this morning, to believe that he can do a miracle and he can do a miracle. Whatever it is that you need this morning, the Holy Spirit is in you. And when we see a small group of disciples in the very first sermon that's preached, and we know 2,000 years of history, the gospel has spread around the globe. It was so unlikely that that would happen through just a few people. Matter of fact, it was impossible that it could happen through a few people. But they had the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's better for you that the Holy Spirit come and live within you than it is for me to stay and walk beside you. Don't downplay the role of the Holy Spirit. He is powerful. He has a definite plan for your life, the same way he did for Jesus. And he is with you. And he can empower you this morning to walk out of these doors with a strength that you did not have when you walked in with a faith that you did not have when you walked in. And God will be glorified through your story. Number four, salvation is here. Nothing else has to be done. Jesus died for our sins. The gospel is proclaimed. Sinners can be saved. Church, we have a job to do. Grace is offered 
to all who believe. He tells the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, this is offered to you. That's amazing because they had just crucified Jesus. Jesus was willing to save the man who drove the nails in his hands. And the man who set up the plot in the middle of the night to have him arrested and have him crucified. Jesus died to save them. He tells the Jewish leaders, he died to save you. He says, and your children. And he takes it a step further. He says, all those around the world. So we have a job to do. We have to proclaim that salvation is here. It's been said so many times. But if we had a cure for cancer, what would we do when we left this place this morning? What would we do to tell the world? We'd be on social media. We'd be renting billboards. Be sending out letters, flyers, emails. <laughs> any way we could reach people with the gospel. We have something better than a cure for cancer. We have the good news that cures us from our sins. Makes us followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. And the process by which that happens is through the preaching of the gospel. Father, I thank you that a sermon that was preached almost 2,000 years ago is still just as powerful as it was when your Holy Spirit filled Peter and he preached those words. Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do in the life of believers. If anyone here does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Father, please call them to faith. Lord, I pray that the work that has been started this morning through the proclaiming of the gospel would continue as we go out into the world this week. Help us to believe the gospel, to live the gospel. Father, help us to share it with others. Lord, those who are going through storms this morning, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to them in a special way. Give them peace in the middle of the storm. Give them faith. Lord, I pray that you would grant healing. Lord, I pray that you would give answers. Father, I pray that we would submit our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. This has been an RFP Extra. Check back next week for a full Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Join us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Visit our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. T-shirts available now.